Okay, let's get ready to dig into God's word. But before we do, what is your favorite way to procrastinate? My favorite way to procrastinate is to learn something new. So if I have a daunting assignment on the agenda, I have a habit instead of picking up a new book. It means I'm often reading a ridiculously high number of random books at any time. For example, no joke, right now I am reading a 500-page book about the 1920s U.S. presidential election between Warren G. Harding and James M. Cox, the Ohio governor. It is super meaningful and relevant information. I'm also working my way through a book called Why We Sleep by neuroscientist at Cal Berkeley. Um, uh, what was his name? Matthew Walker. Also, as we finished our journey through the book of Ruth, I was inspired to do a deep dive into my favorite Hebrew word, chesed. So in my quiet times now in the, with the Lord, I am reading a short chapter each day from Michael Card's wonderful book, Inexpressible, Chesed and the Mystery of God's Loving Kindness. Now, I have proclaimed this Hebrew word that we, I taught you in Ruth to be my favorite word in any language. I said hesed is the Hebrew word in the whole Bible that most defines God's character. And I described God's hesed as his extraordinary loyalty and gracious devotion to those he calls his own. But now as I've been reading this book, Procrastinating, uh, I have learned a new working definition for my favorite word, and I love it. And Michael Card, he explains Hesed in this way. When the person from whom I have a right to expect nothing gives me everything. And I want you to be thinking about this definition as we read our passage today from the Gospel of Luke. So we'll be in the Gospel of Luke chapter 7. And we'll start in verse 36 together, and we will read through, straight through, to verse 50. So, the word of the Lord. Luke 7, starting in verse 36. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him. And Jesus went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at table. And behold, a woman of the city, who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now when the Pharisee who had invited Jesus saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for he, she is a sinner. And Jesus, answering, said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, Say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? Simon, the Pharisee, answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? 
I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, but he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, her sins are forgiven. Then those who were at table with him began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Dear God, we thank you for the gift of your word. For the ability to see you. To hear your voice. To discover who it is we follow. Teach us as we plumb the depths of this story. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now I know it's been a while since we've been together through the Gospel of Luke. But one of the things I appreciate about Luke's narrative is how he structures his story. He doesn't have Jesus going from miracle to miracle or from big teaching to big teaching. He has Jesus going from meal to meal. Jesus eats his way through the Gospel of Luke, which I really like. And today he's breaking bread with a Pharisee, someone who you might assume would be opposed to Jesus and his message. Now it's true, the Pharisees are regularly depicted in the Gospels as resisting Jesus, but they should be natural allies. The Pharisees, they're the religious conservatives of their day. They land in a very similar theological spot to Jesus, yet they often prove to be his fiercest critics. So why did Jesus accept this man's invitation to dinner? Why step into what one would expect to be a hostile environment? Well, Jesus is committed to what I call gospel hospitality. Gospel hospitality is costly, self-giving love that elevates a stranger and allows them to be welcomed in as God's honored guests. And he says, even though you might be my opponent, I will draw near and embrace you. I will accept you. I am willing to push through the awkwardness to endure the arrows. arrows. I will become family with you in hope that I might be able to see your relationship restored with a God who saves, with the God who made you. It is Jesus' loving kindness that prompts him to accept this man's invitation. But why does the Pharisee invite Jesus? Well, remember that in the eyes of their society, Jesus is this prominent, popular, traveling rabbi. And even in Judaism today, it's considered virtuous to invite a rabbi over for dinner, especially if the teacher's from out of town or he just taught at your synagogue. So there's this little bit of social competition The one who lands the rabbi gains clout among his peers. So Simon the Pharisee, he asked Jesus to dinner because Jesus is a status symbol. Jesus' appearance will boost his reputation. It will identify Simon as a man of prominence and influence in his community. 
Yet we also start to discern Simon's subtle contempt for his invitee. This banquet is ostensibly to celebrate Jesus, but Simon has offered him, Jesus himself, shoddy hospitality. It's culturally expected that when you arrive, a host offers you water to wash your dusty feet and oil to anoint your face and hair, your sun-scorched face, your wind-swept hair so you can become presentable and enter in to that celebration. It was culturally seen as an affectionate greeting or, or even a re- sign of respect to kiss your guest on the cheek. It, it said that you both either beloved that you loved them or you were greatly honored for their presence in your home. All of this is brazenly denied to Jesus. It's a quiet humiliation as he comes to Simon's house for dinner. Now Simon's party does make a splash because things turn unexpectedly spicy. Now you have to know that when the pious and well-to-do threw a feast back in the day, they sometimes opened their homes to the poor. Wealthy houses in those days had these large inner courtyards, these open-air courtyards, and they would put out spreads of food on tables around the perimeter so that the hungry and the uninvited might be able to come and eat. Now those who came to receive this charity, they were uh, to remain quiet and away from the center of the courtyard where the banquet proper was taking place. They could observe the discussions of the host and his guests, but they were told to not participate, not to interfere. And the setup for these meals is really weird to us now in our culture. There was this low central table table with the food was on, and all of the guests would be either on the floor, propped up on like a makeshift bed of pillows, or reclining on a low couch, eating up on one arm, grabbing from the table with their legs kind of sticking out behind them, radiating like the rays of the sun around the table. So we got the the center table in the middle. Everyone's on the ground. You have the tables around the courtyard where folks are eating. And then into this scene enters our unnamed woman. To all appearances, she's one of the uninvited charity cases. Someone whose presence is supposed to trumpet news of Simon's wealth and benevolence to his community. Like Jesus, she serves a purpose. She's enhancing the Pharisees' reputation. But she's to be seen and not heard. To eat with gratitude and depart. To not linger and taint the night's events with her lowliness. Yet she's come for a different purpose. She has come to honor Jesus. And then this woman stands behind Jesus and anoints his feet has to do with his posture there at the table. She loves on what she can reach, which are his feet, the unwashed toes of our Savior. These are the same toes that... Simon denied any water for washing, yet with her salty tears, she cleanses these feet that bring good news. 
Without a towel, she pats them dry with her hair and she perfumes them with an expensive, sweet-smelling ointment. And it's all so sudden and unexpected. It's this disruptive assault of sound and sight and smell. It's really this kind of audacious display that is simultaneously intimate and dramatic. So not knowing her story, how would you interpret this woman's actions? Think about that for a moment. What thoughts would be racing through your mind if you were a spectator to those events? I know for some of you, the the kind of spectacle of it would make you uncomfortable. There's some of us that are rule followers. Any rule followers in the room? Yeah, I get really uncomfortable by breaches of protocol for some reason. They throw me off. I get affronted. So maybe some of us would say, hey, wrong time, wrong place. Others can't handle public displays of genuine emotion. Anyone in that camp? Good. Uh, You feel almost embarrassment on the other person's behalf, and you start to avert your eyes so that there is no witness at all to their emotions coming out. It's okay, guys. We can show emotions. I'm Latino. I'm fine with being emotional and passionate, but I understand some of you are wired differently. Now, Simon the Pharisee, he is scandalized because he recognizes who she is. If you notice the pairing of a woman of the city and sinner, that's a little bit of a cultural code. Together, they strongly hint that this woman is a prostitute or at least someone who is known for being morally loose. Jewish women who were religious or married went about in society with their, their heads covered. And to let out one's hair was regarded as a sensual act. And to do so in public was perceived by some as a marker of promiscuity. But Jesus is the opposite of embarrassed or scandalized. He receives her uninhibited display of devotion willingly. He willingly receives her. He's totally unruffled by her which shocks Simon even more. Simon harbors contempt and judgment towards this woman, which he now extends to Jesus. If he were truly a prophet, he would know her, the sort of woman she is, and he would reject her. But what motivates this woman's behavior towards Jesus? What might she be trying to communicate or accomplish? We're not told. We're simply informed that she loved much. We see her trying to extend to Jesus the courtesy and the hospitality that he was denied by Simon. We sense her desire to demonstrate her overwhelming and uncontainable gratitude. And this is how she decides to pour out her appreciation. It is raw. It is costly. It is unrestrained. Joy and love power her tears. They drive her actions. She is showing how much she values Jesus in real terms. 
And it reminds me of David's words in 2 Samuel 6 when he's defending to his wife his wild dancing before the Lord in public worship. David says, It was before the Lord who chose me. I will celebrate before the Lord. I will become even more undignified than this. And I will be humiliated in my own eyes. That social cost is not too great for me to express my true gratitude, nor is it too great a financial cost. We don't realize this, but the woman's perfume likely cost her a whole year's worth of wages. It's an extravagant gift, but not inappropriate to the degree of her love and her praise of Jesus. And no words need to yet pass between Jesus and the woman, but he prepares Simon for some real talk. Simon, I know her. I know you. I know the sorts of people you are. And let me explain to you what you're missing. So Jesus tells a parable about debt cancellation. A certain moneylender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. Two debtors, two individuals, they've racked up debt with the same creditor. One owes 10 times more than the other. According to my back-of-the-envelope calculations, one must pay a sum that is approximately $4,500 in today's money. The other, $45,000. We're not told the reason for the debt or the circumstances that let each debtor to fall into arrears. Yet we see this little parable even now through our biases. A debt, a debt of nearly $5,000 feels serious, but not ruinous. But when we're talking about a debt burden hanging over you that's closer to $50,000, that feels future-altering a hole from which we might not be able to dig ourselves out of. Yet our perceptions matter for nothing because Jesus assures us that neither debtor is able to pay. They each face the same stark reality. Both are utterly ruined. They're past the stage of collections or declarations of bankruptcy. They are facing debtor's prison, indentured servitude, or worse. Verse 42, when they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love him more? It's a bizarre question when you think about it but we know the answer intuitively. Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he canceled the larger debt. And he said to him, you've judged rightly. It's funny, what consolation we find in stupid comparison. Yeah, I'm grateful, thanks. But I was doing decently, positively okay when compared to that person. Woof. No, you weren't, dummy. You were busted. 
You face the same fate, the same dire consequences. But come on, look at them. They're a train wreck. They're a walking disaster. They're hopeless and embarrassing. How adept, how skilled we are at self-promotion and self-delusion. I love the phrase, Jesus did not come to make bad men good or good men better. He came to make dead men alive. And the last time we were together in Luke, right before this story, Jesus marches to the village of Nain to raise a widow's only son who's had a sudden and untimely demise. His mother, in contrast, is dying slowly. She's a member of the walking dead. She faces this brutal future of desolation and abandonment and starvation. Now, Jesus was a stranger to both her and her son. Two individuals totally helpless, helpless when facing the ravages of death. But Jesus stepped into their lives with compassion and power. And he raises her son and gives him back to her. And do you remember what the crowds had said? A great prophet has arisen among us and God has visited his people. Jesus did not come to make bad men good or good men better. He came to make dead men and women alive. And we have the right to expect nothing from him, but he has given us everything. Now, which of them will love him more? We keep reading, and then we read, then turning toward the woman, Jesus says to Simon, do you see this woman? Do you truly see her? There's so much we don't know about her story, but whether from afar hearing reports or in a more intimate and personal way, this woman has comprehended the truth of Jesus' identity and character. Some scholars theorize that this is the woman caught in adultery, that he spares. In faith, she clings to what she's seen and what she's heard. In Jesus, she's discovered the arrival of God's saving chesed. My favorite word again. She's holding to the promises of Scripture that are now fulfilled in Him. Under the promise of something like Psalm 107, Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His chesed, His steadfast love, endures forever. Let the redeemed of the Lord say so, whom He has redeemed from the hand of the foe and gathered in from the lands, from the east and from the west, from the north and from the south. Redeemed from the hand of the foe, whether that foe be the crushing debt of our own wrongdoing and sin that has foreclosed upon our future, or the oppressions of demons, disease, evil men, even from the ravages of death, he rescues us. The one whom you and I have the right to expect nothing from, he gives us he gives everything to gather us in. We were his enemies and he paid the price so that we might be welcomed as honored guests. Through Jesus' mediation, 
Strangers can become neighbors. Neighbors can become friends. Friends can become family. Family with Jesus. Family with His Father. Family with God's Spirit. Family with one another. Surely this woman would quote to us from Joel 2, verses 13. Return to the Lord your God, for He is gracious and compassionate. He is slow to anger, abounding in hesed. And he relents from sending disaster. Or maybe she'd quote to us 2 Chronicles 6, The Lord, the God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven or on earth who keeps His covenant and His hesed with your servants who walk before you with all their heart. Let your saints, and another little Hebrew lesson, let your chesedim, those who are dependent on your hesed, rejoice in your goodness. However she got here, this woman that the world labeled sinner had discerned and come to trust Jesus' heartbeat of hesed. She had no right to expect anything from Him, but He freely and joyfully gives everything. There's no cost, no pain, no shame too great that will outstrip Jesus' steadfast love and His extravagant grace. He's not scandalized by her past. He's not ruffled by her messy present. He loves her and he welcomes her. He forgives her and he will make her new. Unlike Simon, who recognizes his debts, but not their gravity, because he's finding comfort and confidence in comparison This woman recognizes the gravity, the quantity, the quality of her need. Her debt is high and she cannot pay it. She is wholly dependent on God giving everything when she does not deserve it. And she rejoices in that goodness. And this joy overflows in love and gratitude. And before Jesus can even say, daughter, your sins are forgiven, she knows what He will say. Not because she deserves it, but because of who God has revealed Jesus to be. Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house and you gave me no water for your feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she's not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, for she are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. And those at the table began to say among themselves, who is this who even forgives sins? And he said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Jesus restores this woman's status. He elevates her even above Simon, one of the leaders of Israel. But it's not her love that saved her. She did not secure her own future through this extravagant act. Her faith in Jesus saved her. She's depended upon His hesed, and that trust is not misplaced that's why we see her rejoice in his goodness 
Her love overflows because she's been loved unconditionally, loved to the greatest extent imaginable. The person who had no right to expect anything from Jesus has received everything. His life given on a cross for her. Forgiveness purchased by His blood. The sharing of His righteousness and power. He opens up His relationship with God for us. He grants us access to His Spirit, the Spirit, the victorious Spirit of life that will one day raise us from our grave like it already has raised Jesus from His tomb. Jesus gives us a future. He is our hope. And no wonder our sister makes such a glorious scene. Do you love Jesus much? Do you love him enough to make a scene like this? Our unnamed sister is in awe of Jesus' incredible heart and grace. She's marveling at something so sacred, so vast, so supernatural and mysterious, so beautiful that you will feel overcome. And her awe for Christ's heart and grace, it, it shifts her attention away from herself and onto Him. Yes, it diminishes our feelings of self-importance and it makes us feel smaller, but yet strangely more connected to God, to a larger community and purpose. We sing the song of the redeemed, those who love because He first loved us. Simon's love for Jesus is small if it's even there at all. We see him extend Jesus' courtesy, but even that is laced with contempt. Simon stands confident and aloof. He's grown proud through comparison. He sees himself as a good performer rising above his peers in wisdom and virtue and ethical living. He may recognize his debts, but he sees them as small, excusable, understandable. He doesn't acknowledge the gravity of his situation, his spiritual bankruptcy when standing before a holy God. He still is like, I will find my own solution. I will get by. There's no need for me to lose face. No need for me to confess my need. No need for me to depend on God's power or on a transformation, a Savior greater than myself. Jesus has met with Simon in his house, but Simon cannot receive him because truly receiving him will mean admitting he is a fake and self-righteous blowhard. The gospel is beautiful, but it exposes us for what we are. Debtors, sinners, those with no right to make demands, no claims to make on God. But... For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. I invite you to be saints. Simon thought he was a saint. 
but he didn't realize what it meant to be a saint. A saint is someone who is dependent on God's hesed and rejoices in Christ's goodness. This woman, a prostitute, was a saint because she trusted wholly in Jesus and his extraordinary loyalty and faithfulness and grace to those he calls his own. Not because we deserve it, but because of who he is. Be a saint. Admit your debt. Confess your inability to pay. Embrace his forgiveness and cling to him for new life. For new love and belonging. For victory even over evil, sin, and death. Love much because he has loved us so much. Let's pray and invite the worship team forward. God, we stand in awe. And it does make us feel small at the immensity of your heart. But it also makes our troubles and our trials, our brokenness and our sin pale in comparison to your mighty power and your unending grace. Teach us to depend on your heart and your power, your chesed for all that we need. We admit openly when we fall short. We cannot improve ourselves to glory, God. Only you can rescue and save us. So we let you. We say thank you. And we honor you for your great love shown to us. If there's anyone here today still trying to walk the path of Simon, I pray that you would give them the courage to be a saint. To trust in Jesus alone and not themselves. May the old pass below the water and may new people be born not bad men made good or good men made better, but dead men made alive. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.